Please, come forward. Mr. Gray will see you now. You've seen the films. You know you've wondered. Hmm, what would it be like to be tied up and whipped in front of a crowd of people? Oh, what's that you say? You want to hold the whip? By all means. And if you do venture into the salacious world of BDSM today, what will you find? Meatballs with barbecue sauce and a platter from Costco of veggies and dip and probably some Capri Suns in a cooler. And who will you find there? Overwhelmingly, nerds. People into Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, introverts. My tastes are very singular. You wouldn't understand. Hmm. What is it really like to be part of the BDSM community today? And how have things changed since the Weimar era we heard about in a previous episode? Rusty, an insider in the community, is here to tell us all about it. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. In the opening episode of our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, we saw how Berlin in the Weimar era before Hitler became known as the sex capital of Europe. It was the era depicted in Cabaret, Blue Angel, and Babylon, Berlin. The pleasures on tap included, among other things, flogging another or letting them flog you. Now, this, of course, conjures in the mind scenes of leather and bondage and domination, and it's hard to avoid a sense of titillating sensation. But is the image we get from films like these, or even Fifty Shades of Grey, a particularly accurate reflection of what really goes on in the BDSM community. And can we learn anything about what it might have been like for those venturing into the scene in the Weimar era of Berlin by exploring what the BDSM community is like today? That's what we're going to find out. Rusty, who prefers she-her pronouns, has been an educator and speaker in both the kink and non-monogamous communities since mid-2016. She enjoys exploring personal dichotomies. For example, she is both an avid rope top, meaning she ties people up, and a submissive in a 24-7 TPE dynamic, or total power exchange, i.e. the type of all-encompassing arrangement where one might have dominion over things like bedtime, finances, and multivitamins. She is passionate about diversity, inclusion, acceptance, consent, and personal accountability. In addition, she draws wisdom from over a decade in the recovery community and a background in critical sociolinguistics. She identifies as queer, kinky, non-binary, feminist, and an egalitarian polyamorist. 
She can be found on FetLife as Mominant, and her writings on ethical relationships can be found at the blog Polly with a Big Heart. That's www.pollywithabigheart.com. Thanks for being on the show, Rusty. Thank you for having me. I asked Rusty about the real experience of being part of the BDSM community, and she immediately went to people's distorted perceptions from films. The eyes wide shut mentality. Of <laughs> yep. the, that was the yeah, first the, place my mind went. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I'm here to tell you at those types of parties where people gather to do activities in front of each other, um, we occasionally have meatballs with barbecue sauce and a platter from Costco of veggies and dip and, you know, probably some um, Capri Suns in a cooler for people who want to recharge after playing hard. Uh, whoa, social whoa. Stop, area. Stop there. I'm tapping out. That's too much for me. Capri Sun. I no. know. I know. It's, um, it can be tough to word. listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, We've got barbecue meatballs, like every other Midwestern potluck. And if you don't want to go in the basement, you don't have to. What kind of people tend to end up in the BDSM community? Overwhelmingly, nerds. Intellectuals, people into um, Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, um, introverts. There's a lot of introverts in kink. And you just wouldn't think that introverts would then want to go and have sex in a dungeon in their underwear in front of other people, but apparently they do in front of each other. Um, I, I think it's that. as an introvert <laughs> myself. And honestly, because it attracts so many people who are introverted, intelligent, and creative, you get a community of people that really care about one another and want to foster that sense of individual acceptance. For example, you know, people watch eyes wide shut and they see a bunch of incredibly tall, slender, tanned, perfectly beautiful bodies. And you walk into a dungeon and you do not see that. Right. And it's great because it means that if you want to take your clothes off, you're just going to be like everybody else. And I would say that kinksters are just a bunch of sex nerds. It's people who are like, oh, hey, here is this fun activity what kind of weird sciency stuff can I do with it? Where can I take it? And we play a lot with the chemicals that our bodies produce. So um, chemicals like adrenaline, like dopamine. Yes, absolutely. Many of us seek a cathartic release through that activity or a space where we can have someone give us ultimate control over them and just feel what that feels like in a safe and consensual environment. What is BDSM? So it's bondage. Discipline. Well, it's an acronym with a couple of different applications. It's not just the four letters. It's it's BD is uh, bondage and discipline. DS is domination and submission. And then S and M is your sadism and your masochism. And this uh, this clever dual purpose tri purpose acronym yeah. was created. Acronyms. Yes. you are sex nerds. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Oh God, we're so dorky. <laughs> um, Many of our listeners, you know, their experience of this, maybe they've seen Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, I will put the caveat out there that if if someone's frame of reference is only Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm not the best person to compare and contrast because I never read the books and I saw one of the movies sort of 
out of obligation sure. <laughs> to sort of to sort of see what other people might be seeing. But what I am able to say is that uh, that relationship was coercive and abusive and kind of spun people who are into dominating others as flawed in some way or the product of childhood. It just sort of portrayed people into BDSM as somehow damaged. That's not the case. Uh, we come from all walks of lives with all types of families of origin, and there is no common thread to what brings us. BDSM is not a substitute for therapy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not all of us need therapy. Does it occasionally happen on a couch? <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. I had a rough start in life. You should steer clear of me. To what do you owe your success? I exercise control in all things, Miss Steele. It must be really boring. I'm capable of leaving you alone. Symptom. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me the most in that movie is how um, neither one of those people had a support network where they could verify that what was going on was safe. There were situations that were kind of stalkery. And I wouldn't recommend that anyone get into a relationship that looked like that. Maybe run as fast as you can in the opposite direction and take out a restraining order. Maybe yeah. a little. <laughs> little, little bit. Um, if someone hands you, particularly someone in a position of power, uh, hands you a contract to sign your life away, maybe don't do that thing. Um, <laughs> probably won't hold up in a court of law anyway. Um, but consent was mostly absent in that scenario. And I get that people romanticize the um, the domination and submission aspect of it. But the truth of the matter is DS relies very heavily on a dynamic negotiated by two equals who then decide what it will look like and then shift the power balance. So I engage in a relationship like that with one of my partners. And that's the biggest difference there is we are both always in control all the time. There's an emotional connection when someone trusts you enough to hand over aspects of their life. And it can involve things like your finances, um, who you are allowed to play with outside of the relationship, where you're allowed to go if you have to update people. Some people have a bedtime. Some people, you know, have a rule where they have to take their multivitamin every day. I mean, it's there are caretaking relationships. There are purely sexual relationships. And that touches on another interesting part is that there's so much more here than just sex. Oh, absolutely. I One of the things that I've been known to say in uh, the kink community is I prefer my sex be kink kinky, but I don't need my kink to be sexy. Um, <laughs> when I first got into community several years ago, I identified primarily as a rope top. And that is, I tied people up. And never once was there any sex involved in any of that. It was something I did for aesthetics. It was something I did sort of as a, as a craft or performance art. I'm also an exhibitionist. But, you know, I did it in my underwear to naked people. Um, so... <laughs> And, and we had audiences in sex dungeons. And much kink is like that. You can play with electricity. You can play with needles. You can play with a lot of different things. And it isn't inherently sexy unless the people in the scene themselves or engaging in that moment want it to be. And that's negotiated. What was your first experience like for you? How old were you? Where were you? Was it put me in the scene, if you will? So for me, um, it was mosh pits. Many people in the kink community, uh, after they've had time to reflect, will realize that 
at some point in their early childhood, they just sought out experiences that kind of mirror what they are into today. And like I said, not inherently sex-based at all. Um, so sensation play is very popular. Impact play, getting hit or experiencing the chemicals that get released in your body when you overexert or experience pain and then get rush of endorphins. Mosh pits. I am a tiny person and I like to go into mosh pits with giant guys and just get tossed around. Rock on. Um, or, yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or working out to excess and, and sort of feeling what that feels like. Um, impact I jumped around a lot. I would go on 20-mile bike rides when I was a kid, and then I would be high for hours off of the endorphins. So kinksters often are able to look back at their childhoods and say, you know what? That was kinky. Uh, and then as you, know, as you develop as an adolescent, you become interested in sex. Um, I guess my primary kink is whatever's weird. If it's weird, then great. And I'm into it. And that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you like new experiences. And I get to, yes. And if I can get someone to drink a glass of my saliva just because, that's cool. I mean, <laughs> why not? That's weird, right? But, but I don't care. <laughs> uh -huh. What it's like to be in that kind of community is comfortable and loving and supportive. I make a lot of really good friends in that community. I help people move. If that's not deep friendship, I don't know what is. But <laughs> That kind of goes out. along with the Capri Suns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might really? tie somebody up and you might help them move. <laughs> absolutely. That is absolutely what happens. It's really close-knit. Um, I would say the only frustrating part about any of it is when I am in a situation where I know it's not appropriate to talk about these things um, or even allude to them that I feel like I'm showing up as less than myself. I prefer to be in spaces where I don't have to censor myself for me at all. And I don't feel unique or special in any of that. Like you belong. Yes, absolutely. Somewhere you belong. So that's a little of what the BDSM community is really like today. But Rusty also mentioned that in addition to being into kink, she is also polyamorous and non-binary. So I asked her how that fit into the BDSM mix. Does it all go together like a nice mixed salad or is it more complicated than that? It tends to for me. Uh, and I certainly can't speak for everyone. There are definitely areas of the kink community that are not as accepting to non-binary people. And uh, non-binary or trans people have created networks uh, within the kink community for themselves where they build their own inclusive and diverse spaces where they feel safest. But uh, that said, the spaces that are filled with dominant groups, the, the dominant groups, that white, groups. Yeah, yeah, white, cis, het, walking checklists of privilege, as my boyfriend likes to call himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> those people should uh, actively work against exclusion in order to create better spaces. Uh, you can't be a welcoming space just by saying, well, you're welcome here. You actually have to act welcoming. But, uh, oh, my identity. So I am female presenting. I have long hair. I wear makeup. I use she, her pronouns. I have a fairly female body. I prefer something a little more androgynous. Um, and I've used the name Rusty since I was 14 years old in that uh, endeavor. I used to shave my head and not wear makeup. And it was great fun to have people guess whether or not I was a boy or a girl. 
But these days I just say, you know, I'm, I'm non-binary. The, the she, her pronouns don't bug me. Um, I do make a point of identifying myself as non-binary in the spaces where I'm given the opportunity to do that. So when I go to renew my license now in Minnesota, we have the option to have an X instead of an F or an M, and I will be availing myself of that. Um, on Facebook, my Facebook profile says I'm non-binary. I have a, a FetLife profile, which is kind of like a kinky Facebook. It's not wonderful, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, I do put it out there as often as I can. When I'm meeting a work colleague for the first time, uh, I use my given name of Jennifer, which is awful. Everybody has that name. Um, and <laughs> it's also very feminine and I don't say, hi, I'm Jennifer, but I prefer you call me rusty. And, and actually I'm not a girl, um, because it just, it's just not comfortable for me to make that the beginning of every interaction. But right. in that way, I do get to choose when and where I identify as part of a marginalized community. Uh, there's a lot of privilege in that. But as far as non-monogamy goes, I'm completely out about that. Uh, I do not introduce myself. Hello, my name is Rusty and I am non-monogamous. Um, but <laughs> even sure. if you're Googling my legal name, uh, you can find that. Um, and it overlaps very well with the BDSM community. There's a lot of acceptance for uh, various shades of monogamy or non-monogamy because there is a whole spectrum. So I've never felt out of place or judged there at all. What does it feel like for you to experience being part of something that a lot of people, frankly, may not ever understand? Um, I, I think I feel like it is less of a secret um, than most people might view it as. I'm into, I used to have a, a giant bonded steel and four by four wood frame in my master bedroom. And it was there for years. And my mother has seen it. And my kids, people at my apartment building have seen it and commented on it and asked me what it's for. And I'm honest. I'd find if you treat things as normal and matter of fact, people are able to process them as normal and matter of fact. The more normal I show up as with kink, the more normal people treat it. And also, everybody's got their something. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never anything like this. There are very few people who don't have something in the back of their minds that they think is incredibly weird and they might not want to tell someone that they actually access videos of that thing. <laughs> you know there is no way on earth you're going to leave here tonight without taking me with you. So what can Rusty's BDSM experience today tell us about the experiences of those in the Weimar era of Berlin in the 1920s? We're going to find that out next. But first, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Hey, guess what, folks? Whether you're a fan of leather or history or leather history, there are plenty of books out there that you can check out to scratch that itch. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. But why Audible? Well, Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. For example... You can, of course, check out the one everybody talks about, Fifty Shades of Grey. Do it. You know you want to. Or 
you can check out the Fifty Shades of Lady Catherine Grey, The Sex Scandals That Shook the Tudor Court. Yes, that is a real book on Audible. And there are many others just like that, titillating titles just waiting for you. Right now, I'm listening to Dan Carlin of Hardcore History read his book, The End is Always Near, and you can too for free. You get one free title with your trial membership. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g for your free audiobook. And now, The History of Sex presents this. And now, how to talk Minnesotan, bondage style. Traveling to Minnesota for a bit of BDSM on Lake Bidemikoska? Well, you could do worse than to learn a little of the local lingo. Your dungeon monitor will appreciate it, and it may save you some embarrassing moments. Here's a list of the most important words and phrases that you should know before you arrive. One phrase you're sure to hear is, you betcha. You betcha is used in the affirmative. For example, <laughs> Please, sir, may I have another? You betcha. You betcha can also be used as a substitute for you're welcome. Hey, thanks for letting me lick your eyeball, Ralph. You betcha. Now some experiences you may like, while others you may not like. So you'll want to know how to express this without hurting your play partner's feelings. For this, you'll find three phrases indispensable. Not bad, could be worse, and that's different. Well, just about done tying you up there, Ralph. How's that feel? Not bad. What if I stick my finger up your butt like this? Could be worse. The first two phrases express a positive reaction, but not so with the third. How about if I tickle your nipples with lutefisk like this? That's different. So with these three phrases, you should be good for your first Minnesota dungeon experience. But there's one more thing you need to know. If you feel a scene has gone too far, or you just need a breather, you should know Minnesota's most common safe word. Hot dish! Oh, sorry about that, Ralph. I'll play a bit more gently. Hot dish, which other people call casserole, is also a delicious way to unwind after a rewarding dungeon session. Hey Piggy, pass the hot dish. Sure, Ralph. Now that you know the local lingo, you're ready to experience your first Minnesota dungeon. In fact, I think I hear Peggy arriving now, which means it's time for me to put in my gag ball. Hi, Peggy. I told you to call me Lake Superior. Yes, Lake Superior. All right, we're back. The history of BDSM goes back, way back. An Etruscan fresco from the 5th century BCE, for example, shows two men whipping a woman. And woodblock prints from feudal Japan testify to the perfection of kinbaku, or rope play. And then, of course, we've all heard of that darling of 18th century France, the Marquis de Sade. But let's go now to Germany in the 1920s, in the era just before Hitler came to power, the era of the Weimar Republic, just after World War I. Berlin, before Hitler, could fairly be called the sex capital of Europe, if not the world. As we heard in the first episode of our series Sex in the Third Reich, the Weimar period suffered hyperinflation, which led to rampant sex tourism because, well, the exchange rate meant suddenly foreigners could buy a whole lot more with their cash, and Berlin 
came to be known as a place where any desire imaginable could be indulged for a price. And specialists appeared. For example, minetas, meaning female cats, would whip you for a price, racehorses would let you whip them, and boot girls were dominas displaying their various specialties by the color of their patent leather boots. Weimar-era Berlin was by no means the beginning of such activities, but it brought them to the fore. What was it like, then, for those cabaret kinksters? And how was it different from the BDSM experience today? I think the primary difference between today and what may have been happening in Berlin is agency and consent. So when you're talking about a situation with hyperinflation, because... I'm a nerd, so I have an economics degree. Um, oh, when you're when you're t- yeah. um, when you're talking about a situation of hyperinflation, needing to do anything they can just to eat, uh, you create an inherent power dynamic between the consumer and the vendor. Um, so a sex worker in that regard is literally dependent upon a pittance for their incredible effort in order to survive or feed their children, um, or just make it to the next day. And that type of dependence upon their income is basically indentured servitude, and therefore it removes their ability to consent. They can't say no, or they'll die. So when you talk about sex tourists who come specifically into an environment where they're going to get the most bang for their buck. Oh, forgive me that pun. I couldn't, (laughs) but they're going to get the most bang for their buck, you know, $5 for a month, I believe, as opposed to a night Mm -hmm. elsewhere. You are basically throwing a couple of quarters at someone for their slavery. And then I hesitate to even call it BDSM because it was so abusive and there was so much at stake. So um, agency is huge today where you do have sex workers in the BDSM community, but they say where, they say when, they say how much. That was a pretty woman, quote, totally problematic movie, (laughs) but that still stands. I would imagine in Berlin, nobody got to say where, when, and how much. Mm -hmm. And even in today's community, you will still run into inherent power dynamics when you're talking about um, a 45-year-old man and an 18-year-old woman. You know, there is an an inherent power dynamic uh, when you have a boss um, who is interested in an employee and they leverage that situation. Even though both people may consent to it, it doesn't make it ethical because that person can then turn around later and leverage that relationship and the person in the lower position of, of power can't necessarily revoke their consent. Right. So when you have an inherent power dynamic and there are going to be negative consequences for retaining your agency, that makes it an unethical pairing. So you still have that in today's world. It was just far sure. more prevalent in Berlin. So the big difference between Weimar Berlin and today is agency. And well, sure, there were no doubt kinky sex workers in the Weimar era that were less hard hit by hyperinflation or plying their trade after it when the economy recovered, whose agency was less compromised. But that doesn't change the fact that a great many faced the choice survive or starve, and that, of course, is no choice at all. And then, when Hitler came to power in 1933... The Nazis cracked down on public prostitutes and then instituted military brothels for soldiers later in the war. An agency 
went completely out the window. Now, that was not the end of kink in Germany, of course, nor does it tell the story of those who were not sex workers, but rather those who did it simply because that's what they were into. Those people left few records, but we can be assured that it went underground, as it always had, and survived. Today, the BDSM community in Germany is thriving, making the list of top 10 countries with most downloads of the app Whippler, which is kind of like a kinky Tinder. And that's about it for the history portion of our episode today, folks. We're nearing the end for today. But before we go, I asked Rusty to relate one of her most memorable BDSM experiences. And she beamed as she related a particularly vivid, if unusual, scene. I tied up my girlfriend at the time um, as a unicorn. And I tied her so she was walking around on elbows and knees, uh, wearing a rainbow fishnet bodysuit and a unicorn wig with a horn. Um, I donned a cowgirl cap, uh, used a flower-shaped fly swatter as a riding crop, put a cowbell around her neck, and rode her around the dungeon to the tune of Hallelujah, um, which we got everyone to sing along to. So (laughs) it's... um, Sometimes it isn't just so much that you are in scene, uh, but you get to make a scene. And there is a lot of laughter um, and ridiculous things. Sometimes you just need more cowbell. Yes. Before we go, do you have any projects or events or other things that you would like our listeners to know about? Uh, Well, if your listeners are interested in the kink community at all, and they promise not to search for it at work on their work computers, (laughs) um, there is (laughs) there is a website where people can get involved in their local communities, vetlife.com. And events and groups are arranged by locality. Um, but you will see a lot of naked people doing a lot of naked things. That, and that's you know, FetLife, F-E-T, like the beginning of fetish? Yes. Okay. F-E-T-L-I-F-E dot com. And you'll find whatever you're into, there's a group devoted to it, I promise. And I think the only other thing I'm really... I really engage much in is uh, the blog. It's almost embarrassing to say because everyone's doing it, but I am working on a book. <laughs> uh, not necessarily on non-monogamy specifically, but autonomy, um, individual autonomy and how to apply that to relationships, which Interesting. pairs nicely with non-monogamy, but, but with autonomy being the focus, not multiple partners being the focus. So Awesome. Rusty, thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was uh, fun to listen to the episode, and it was fun to talk about all this nerd stuff. Yeah, and I will never look at Capri Suns the same again. <laughs> or barbecue meatballs. In or barbecue pot. meatballs. <laughs> yep. So I'm going to go help my friend move this weekend, and uh, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Folks, check out Rusty's blog, Polly with a Big Heart. And if you're interested, you might even explore that kinky Facebook she mentioned, Fet Life. You'll meet some new people, encounter some new perspectives, and who knows, you might end up helping somebody move. 
That's F-E-T-L-I-F-E dot com. Folks, if you like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. And we also have a Patreon, where $5 a month buys you a month's worth of carnal pleasures. Oh, wait, no, that's Weimar Berlin, sorry. $5 a month does get you a hand-drawn portrait, though, and I will draw you as a sexy cabaret singer, or maybe a kinky meatball lunch lady. Whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just this week, I finished a portrait for patron Tara Carlson. She asked to be drawn as a 20s-era Polish suffragette, and you can see that on our supporters page of our website, and you can get your portrait by supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com forward slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm that guy, B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.